going to start this morning by reading from Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look, there, or look, here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In this passage, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God as something that has already arrived in the present and yet is also coming in the future. So when the Pharisees ask him where the kingdom of God is, when it will arrive, he tells them that it is in the midst of them right then and right there in front of their very eyes. Now, of course, the problem is that they really haven't believed much of anything he said up to this point. Why would they believe him now? They're willfully ignorant of God's kingdom right in front of them in their midst because it hasn't come on their terms. However, that doesn't mean that the kingdom of God isn't there. You know, I bet other people would believe Jesus when he says the kingdom of God is in their midst. Other people would believe him. People like the demon possessed man of chapter four. Or maybe the cleansed leper of chapter 5. Or the heroes of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6. Or the sinful woman who was forgiven in chapter 7. You think they believe that the kingdom of God is in their midst? I bet they do. But because of how the New Testament presents it, this idea of the kingdom of God is sometimes referred to as the already slash not yet kingdom. The already not yet kingdom. So if someone walks up to you and asks, "Okay, wait a minute, is the kingdom of God already here or is it something that's coming in the future? Well, the answer is yes. Right here and right now, in this very moment, 
People like you and people like me, we can see small glimpses of the kingdom and God that has already come in our midst. You and I can see a small glimpse of the kingdom of God when a sinner repents and finds forgiveness and joy and salvation and calling in Christ. You and I can see a small glimpse of the kingdom of God when a church embraces the poor and their community. We see a small glimpse of the kingdom of God when two people who every bit of worldly wisdom says they should be enemies who hate each other. They're actually brothers who love each other because of their mutual faith in Jesus. Those tiny glimpses of the kingdom of God that we see, they're like a cup of water after days wandering in a desert. Because for a brief moment, they bring such satisfaction and such joy and such relief. But then when they're gone, they leave us longing for more. Wishing we had more in front of us. That's why we long for the future aspect of the kingdom of God. That time when Jesus will return. Because when Jesus returns, we won't just have to settle for momentary glimpses of God's kingdom that quickly fade and quickly pass. We'll see it everywhere we look. And those things that oppose God's kingdom, violence and pain and corruption and rebellion and injustice and evil and sin and Satan, all that stuff... When the kingdom of God comes, that stuff will be no more. So while in one sense the kingdom of God has already arrived in the incarnation and life of Jesus, it also hasn't fully arrived yet because Jesus still hasn't returned. That's why Jesus warns his disciples not to fall for false claims about his return. He makes it clear that when I return... You'll know it when you see it. It will be undeniable. It will be universal, like a flash of lightning, bigger and brighter than anything you could ever imagine. But not only will it be undeniable and universal, but it will be unexpected. Like the flood was in the story of Noah's Ark or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were eating and drinking, building and planting Marrying and being given in marriage, going on about business and life as normal. But then something happened. Those examples, Noah's Ark and Sodom and Gomorrah, they highlight the fact that the return of Jesus and the full once and for all appearance of the kingdom of God will be a source of salvation and joy for some. But for those like the Pharisees, those who reject Jesus It will be a time of grief and punishment, like the flood was, or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was. And as crazy as it sounds, according to Jesus, none of this stuff will occur. None of it will happen without his suffering and death on a cross. It all revolves around that event. So, in light of all that, I'm going to ask you an honest question, not a rhetorical question, not a trick question, just an honest question. Do you really believe all this stuff? Do you really believe all this stuff? 
that one day the kingdom of God is going to come once and for all with Jesus's return. And the reason I ask that is because, let's be honest, it sounds a little bizarre. And really, you can't help but wonder, you know, if this stuff really is true, then shouldn't it have happened by now? I mean, it has been nearly 2000 years since Jesus died and rose and ascended to be with God. And while we're at it, another question, not rhetorical, not a trick question. Do you really believe that a long time ago, the Son of God lived, died, rose again, and ascended to be in God's presence? Because again, let's be honest, that sounds a little bit crazy too. And I ask those questions for this reason. If we really believe that in the past, Jesus lived, died, rose, and ascended. And if we really believe that in the future, he will return and bring God's kingdom with him once and for all. Well, if we really believe that stuff, then it changes everything. I mean, beliefs like these are not trivial or meaningless or inconsequential. Beliefs like these change everything about how we think and how we live today. And this morning, Jesus gives us a few examples of how. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verse 1. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be on page 605. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you before you leave today. But before we read chapter 18, let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we live in a world where we look around and we read the newspaper, we watch the news, we see things happening in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our nation, and it's easy to think, man, it sure doesn't seem like the kingdom of God is in our midst. But at the same time, we also see those tiny, tiny glimpses of the kingdom of God in our midst. And when we do, they bring so much joy. And God, I pray that we would be on the lookout for them, because they are happening. Give us eyes to see them. God, give us ears to hear your word this morning. Thank you for your word that we have the privilege of reading, that I have the privilege of preaching. Thank you that we have the privilege of gathering here together as a community of believers, as your people, as your household, as your family, to worship together, to pray together, to read your word together, to take communion together. And Father, I pray as we think about the future that you have in store, not just for us, but for all of your creation, every single person created in your image, I pray that we would long for it, that we would look forward to our salvation, that we would look forward to our joy, but that we would also urgently warn those who do not know you of the destruction that comes. God, thank you for the future you've given us and the promise that we can trust in. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. 
For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Like we've seen so many times already in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus gives a parable with two main characters. The first one is a judge. The second character is a widow. Now, the judge is not a good judge. In fact, he's just about the worst judge you can imagine. He lacks the essential qualities to be a good judge. He doesn't fear God and he doesn't respect his fellow man. These are not just rumors about him. These are not opinions that other people have about him. He says in his own words, I don't fear God. I don't respect my fellow man. And a judge who neither fears God nor respects man is like a history teacher who knows nothing about history and hates kids. Not going to be a good history teacher. This guy's not a good judge. Now, when it comes to the widow, the widow has been wronged. And so the widow is looking for justice. Now, she must be pretty low on the food chain because she lacks the leverage. She lacks the resources to find justice on her own. Thus, she has no choice but to turn to this wicked judge as her only hope. Now, the problem, of course, is that the judge couldn't care less about this lady. Again, he is a bad judge. But over the course of time, this lady bugs the judge so much. She bothers him so much that he finally decides to grant her justice. Now, he doesn't do this because he cares about justice. He doesn't do this because he wants to do the right thing. He doesn't do this because he wants to honor God. He doesn't do this because he cares about her. He only grants her justice so that she will leave him alone. So you hear that story and you think, okay, well, what's the lesson there? Well, chapter 18, verse 6. And the Lord, Jesus said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on the earth? So the lesson is not annoy God with your prayers and maybe he'll get tired of hearing you and he'll just give you what you want. That way you'll leave him alone. That's not the lesson of this passage. The lesson is to cry out to God. In verse one, Luke says Jesus was teaching them to pray and not lose heart. Pray and not lose heart. But the parable also finds its meaning in a proper understanding of who God is. A proper understanding of God's character. The whole point seems to be that if even the most wicked, no good, very bad, awful judge will eventually hear the cries of those who are suffering, then how much more so will your God? The God who is good and loving and holy. Now, that being said, like the judge, God might not always answer our cries on our time scale, what we would consider speedily. 
However, we do know that he hears us. We pray and we do not lose heart. Now, what does that have to do with Luke 17, 20 through 37? That big passage I read at the beginning, all that talk about the kingdom of God as both present and future reality. Well, look at verse 8 of chapter 18. That phrase that Jesus uses, when the Son of Man comes. When the Son of Man comes. That's talking about the future coming of the kingdom of God, what we talked about. And Jesus asks this, when he comes, when he returns, will he find faith on the earth? Will there be people who, after all this time, still believe that the kingdom of God would one day come? Will there still be people who, after all this time of seemingly hearing nothing in return, do they continue to pray? Do they continue to cry out to God? Or have they lost heart? Do we really believe that the kingdom of God will one day come, even if it's not on our time scale? Because if we really believe that it will come, then we can keep praying and we can keep crying out to God, knowing that our cries and knowing that our prayers are not in vain. The kingdom of God is coming. Thus, we cry out, we pray and we don't lose heart because we know that eventually, one day, God will deliver. Look at Luke 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they are bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So yet again, parable, two characters. First character is a Pharisee, the second one is a tax collector. Now, you really can't get any more opposite than these two guys. One would be considered a holy man, the Pharisee, and the other man would be considered a complete scoundrel, the tax collector. But the one thing these men have in common is that they both pray, but they pray in very different ways. The Pharisee is arrogant, obnoxious, self-righteous in his prayer. Meanwhile, the tax collector is humble, 
measured, repentant. You might say that the tax collector prays like a child. Luke mentions children in verses 15 through 17. Now, in that day and age, children were a blessing in the sense that they continued the family line. Everybody wanted kids for that reason. But the truth is that until they got older, until they became adults, a lot of people viewed kids as completely useless. They viewed kids as completely dependent upon others. They viewed kids as utterly incapable of offering anything of value in and of themselves. Until they got older. You just dealt with them until they got older. But the tax collector prays in the way that adults would have viewed children. You see, the tax collector approaches God in a way that shows his utter dependence upon God's mercy. The same way a child utterly depends on an adult. The tax collector doesn't pray in a way that exposes any belief and contribution of his own righteousness that can somehow impress God, that can somehow gain standing or merit with God. No, he comes to God as a sinner with nothing to offer. Much in the same way people believed children had very little or nothing to offer. The tax collector prays like a child, unlike the arrogant Pharisee. So because the kingdom of God is coming, we cry out to God like the widow cried out to the judge. We pray and we don't lose heart. But we pray like the tax collector, not like the Pharisee. We pray as an expression of our dependence upon God's mercy, not an opportunity to show off our supposed righteousness. And like the tax collector who went home justified, who went home and slept well, we too can go home and we too can sleep well, knowing that our prayers, knowing that our dependence upon God's mercy, just like our cries, our dependence upon God's mercy is not in vain. It is not useless. It is not meaningless. It is not pointless. One more passage, Luke 18, starting in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, 
Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So we don't see a parable in these verses. We see a real life encounter. We see a rich young ruler come to Jesus. He comes to the right person. Give him credit. And he asks how one inherits eternal life. Again, that's a good question. Now, by everyone's standards, the rich young ruler has done everything right. He has consistently honored God's commands. He has kept his nose clean. But then Jesus asks him for something else, something deeper, something bigger. He asked the rich young ruler for his complete and utter loyalty, specifically at the expense of his riches. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road from what Jesus said last week that we talked about. You cannot serve both God and money. A man cannot serve two masters. You will love the one and hate the other. Now, commentators and preachers are right when they observe that this is not a universal command for all people. Jesus does not tell every single person who comes to him to sell everything they own and give it to the poor. That's true. And like we talked about last week, there are New Testament passages which clearly show wealthy people as vibrant and fruitful members of the early church. But before you breathe too easily, consider this. Just because Jesus doesn't make this demand of everyone doesn't mean that he wouldn't make it of anyone. Just because he doesn't make this demand of everyone doesn't mean he wouldn't make it of anyone. And so if we read this passage and we say to ourselves, man, I sure am glad Jesus hasn't made me choose between him and my wealth. That shows that maybe we've already chosen. So as Jesus' disciples wait for his return, as we wait for his bringing the kingdom of God with him once and for all, we pray and we do not lose heart. We depend upon God's mercy, seen in Jesus for our salvation, not on our own works. And we follow Jesus with our complete loyalty, even though that will mean giving up the idols that we love most. And at the end of that passage, verses 18 through 30, Jesus commends Peter. He commends the other disciples for giving him their loyalty. He commends them for doing what the rich young ruler wouldn't do. They have left everything. But Jesus tells them that their future reward, eternal life, it will far outweigh the present sacrifice. In the end, it will be more than worth it. So back to the very beginning of this sermon. What you believe about the future shapes how you live now. You see it in all kinds of examples. If you believe the stock market is going to crash, then you cash out. If you believe it's going to rain, you grab an umbrella. If you believe it's going to be a zombie apocalypse, then you hoard canned goods in your basement. What you believe about the future shapes how you live now. 
but because Christians believe the kingdom of God has come in the past. And because we believe that it is yet still to come in the future, it shapes how we live now. We pray and don't lose heart. We depend upon God's mercy. And we follow Jesus with all of our loyalty. Jesus lived. Jesus died. He rose. He ascended. Nothing can change that. It's an historical event. It already happened. And one day Jesus will return. And nothing can prevent that. Because it is a promise from God himself. So when we get those little glimpses of the kingdom that we talked about earlier, we can't help but long for more. And the good news is that while we don't know when it will happen, we don't know when it will come, we do know that more is coming. That the kingdom of God will be here. And in the meantime, we pray. In the meantime, we depend upon God's mercy. In the meantime, we give Jesus our loyalty, knowing that when his kingdom comes, when he returns, the present sacrifice will be more than worth it. Let's pray. Father, on the one hand, we are so, so grateful for everything that you've given us here, right now. Like we sang, everything good and every perfect gift, it comes from you, and we don't want to minimize that or dismiss that or trivialize that. But God, at the same time, the gifts that you've given us now, they don't even compare to what you have waiting for us in the future. They don't even compare to the kingdom that's coming. They don't compare to the joy and the salvation that we long to see once and for all. And Father, as we wait for that day to come, whether it comes first or whether we die first and we go to be in your presence, I pray that you would give us patience, that we would pray and not lose heart, that we would consistently depend upon your mercy, not our works, and that we would give you our complete loyalty. Father, we're so grateful for the fact that all of this stuff revolves around the cross. Jesus said that none of this would happen without his suffering, without his death on a cross on our behalf. And so, Father, thank you that you sent your son not only to live, not only to teach, but to die and to be raised. And, Lord, we look forward to the day when he will return. Find us faithful in the meantime. I pray that you would find faith on the earth when your son comes back. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.